Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. You guys excited over this beautiful weather? <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to hear any complaining now. It's too hot after we just got through the winter season. <laughs> no. It's beautiful. We just got to stay right here. Um, yeah, man, what, what, a, what an exciting time. Um, I feel as a body, we go through ebbs and flows. We, we do that in our natural spiritual walk. And I just feel we're really like on this beautiful uh, um, journey where we're really uh, just expecting and, and longing to see God uh, pour out his spirit. Uh, we've been talking about Pentecost. We started last week and we're going to continue on that. And I really feel a tremendous amount of life on what we began to uh, share last week. I, I think a number of you guys were here last week when we started on Pentecost, yes? <laughs> we are, um, we're only a few weeks away from uh, Pentecost. Uh, it's uh, June 5th, I believe, so now we're just a couple weeks away. And I really felt in, in my heart to, uh, to begin to speak into this. Um, a big reason is I feel like I, I feel like the Lord is inviting us to really leverage the season that we're in. And what I, what I mean by that is I, I want to be clear. When we speak about, you know, resurrection on Resurrection Sunday or we speak about the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, uh, it's not like this is the only time that God will pour out His Spirit, <laughs> right? It's not like we have a short window and if it doesn't happen, it's like, well, we'll wait for next year. <laughs> but there is something about leveraging the season that you're in and that we already have a uh, our minds are already thinking about it because we know it's coming up. There's, a, there's already a, just a place where it's, it's, it's something we're meditating on, and I feel like we can really take advantage of that by speaking into it. So we've, uh, I just really feel led to speak into Pentecost. We're going to keep doing that. We may even go a little bit past June 5th because guess what? God can do things after that as well. Um, we are in the age of the pouring out of the Spirit, and um, yeah, uh, so we're going to just kind of each week just pull back a layer and, and just... Deepen a hunger for the Lord to pour out His Spirit. Does that sound all right? So uh, I was really encouraged by last week. Not only was there so much that happened in, in the service, but just so many testimonies have come in of God really touched people deeply. And I just, I just say to have your hearts ready for that to happen again, um, because I just know the Lord's putting His finger on this. All right? So um, real quick, Pentecost, we're celebrating the outpouring of God's Spirit. This is the promised Spirit. This is what we said last week. Uh, meaning the Holy Spirit isn't just like tagged on at the end, uh, but he was promised and prophesied. And not just in the life of Jesus, not just before the ascension of Jesus, which would have been 10 days before Pentecost, but several hundred years prior to the pouring out of the Spirit, uh, we begin to see God uh, awakening his people, his prophets, to begin to see that this day was coming. And God began to awaken a groan in Israel for the coming of the Spirit to be poured out. And so we see it in Isaiah Ezekiel and Joel as well. There's these four great prophetic promises of the outpouring of the Spirit. And so God was, like I just said, God was developing a groan in his people, a waiting, a longing, and an expectation. And I believe God's doing something very similar in our hearts as well. Um, Pentecost is the initiation of the age of promise. So we live in what the Old Testament prophets and people of God longed for. We live in that period. That's an incredible saying. What they long to see, we live in that. This is the age of renewal. It is the age of restoration. It is the age of refreshing. It is the age of reviving. 
because this is what the Spirit does. When the Spirit comes, he is pictured as water, streams. This is what the prophecies say. And he, he, he moves through and he touches every dry and barren place and produces it and causes it to be fruitful. He does it in our hearts. He does it in geographical regions. And so we're living in this time. We have great hope that the restoration of all things has started. He's making us new. He's making all things new. And the Spirit is the agent of the renewal. So it's the Spirit that's making all things new, but it is the church that is the instrument that carries the Spirit. You with me? It is the Spirit that is making all things new. That is the agent of renewal, but it is the, it is the church that is the instrument to carry the Spirit. God can and does sovereignly just pour out on, on places, but what you'll often find is that he loves to pour out on a people, and then it's the people that go in faith now under the power of the Lord. And so what Pentecost is, is we are celebrating, acknowledging, remembering, and longing for the fact that God endowed the church, he graced the church, gifted the church with power from on high to be his instrument and vehicle to bring life and renewal to all things. It's, it's the fact that God has baptized his church with the spirit that we would be equipped to bring the kingdom of God. And I believe the Lord wants to revive a hunger for the clothing of power. <laughs> The Lord wants to revive a hunger for the pouring out of the Spirit. Guys, do you, do you know, where was the church birthed? <laughs> Pentecost. The church was literally birthed by the Spirit, birthed by the power of God. <laughs> the Pentecost shows us that the one equipment necessary for the church to really be the church is the Spirit. I'm thankful for all the other things. There's value in all of it. But if there's really one thing the church needs, Pentecost shows us, it's the Spirit. We are not simply the body of Christ and the church is added in as a helper along the way. No, 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 no. Jesus did not create the church and then bring the Holy Spirit in after. The church wouldn't even exist without the Spirit being poured out. Literally, there is no body of Christ apart from the Spirit being poured out. We are birthed by the Spirit as a community. We are bound by the Spirit. So if there's one thing we need to long for is God, teach us how to decrease that the Spirit of God would increase. God, teach us Teach us to long and hunger for the power of God, not for this weird self-seeking like thing, but, Lord, that we would go out and bring your kingdom and bring glory to your name. Uh, John the Baptist, it says of John the Baptist that he grew in spirit. <laughs> John, when he went into the wilderness, grew in the spirit. John learned how to tarry in the presence of God, and he grew in spirit. And one man shifted the entire trajectory of a nation of Israel because he grew in spirit. What would happen to an entire community that grew in the spirit of the Lord? <laughs> the, the Lord was, was, was speaking to me about something. Um, we're, we're, we, we have a room here that is so hungry that we're filled with desire to see the Lord change. I am so encouraged by everyone's hunger to see that. And I feel like what the Lord was speaking to me is, Andrew, desire is beautiful and necessary, but desire alone will never bring change. Because it is the spirit which is the agent of renewal. Which means apart from the spirit, we can have all the desire we want to see our lives, families, and this community change. But it is only by the spirit that change takes place. So we need to take our desire and then couple would say, Lord, we need to be clothed. <laughs> we want to be clothed with power. We want to be filled freshly again. Lord, we really want the church to come back to what it looks like to be the church again. Amen? So look, Jesus sets the ultimate example. This is... I have so much expectation for this morning. 
Jesus, and, I'm, and I, I want to, we're going to work through slowly in the word because I want your faith anchored in the word and not my feelings or thoughts or what I think it should be. And Jesus is the ultimate example for us, showing us our need for empowerment for ministry. He is the ultimate example to show us that we need to be empowered for ministry if we're really going to bring the kingdom of God. And we should not be surprised by this, for Jesus is always setting us examples. For example, for instance, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he said, I have set an example for you. This is how you ought to live. In Philippians 2, Paul says, imitate Christ by having the mind of Christ and putting others' needs before your own, that whole passage, right? So all throughout Scripture, we can go one after another showing that we are meant to look to Jesus as the gold standard of what it looks like to be a son or daughter, right? What it really looks like to live on this earth as a child of God. Everything I just shared with you, those, those examples are rooted in looking to Jesus for morality and purity. Now, what I found is that no one ever bats an eye when we talk about Jesus being an example for morality and purity. But do you know that Jesus is also meant to set an example for power? And yet somehow when we move from purity and begin to talk about power, the religiousness begins to rise up in the church and we want to make God quiet and dead. But just as Jesus set an example of how to live in purity, he also set an example of the necessity of living in power by the Spirit. It's not uh, one or the other, it's both. We want both. We want the purity of God, but we also need the power of God. For without the Spirit, we cannot truly be disciples of Christ. That's what we're longing for. So here's, here's, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to get into Acts uh, and close it out in Pentecost, but we're going to look at the life of Jesus and the example he set, and specifically, we're going to look at a few verses in the Gospel of Luke, okay? Now, hear me on this. Very important. This is why. The writer of the Gospel of Luke is Luke. <laughs> Guys, I'm just dropping wisdom right now. <laughs> but the writer of Acts is also Luke, but it goes deeper than that. For Luke and Acts is not just written by the same author. We actually need to approach it as two volumes to the same book. It's actually meant to be read as one continuous story. Now, there's a reason, and we're not going to get into it, different thoughts on why it was broken up, some very practical things. But Luke and Acts, as we're going to see today, is actually meant to be one flow. In fact, if we had a screen, I would nerd out. I'd ha I have a chart of the, the flow of Luke and the flow of Acts, and it's mind-blowing how they go hand in hand. It's perfect all the way down. And here's what I want you to see. That's very important. There's two major themes in the Gospel of Luke that bring us into Acts. Number one is the Spirit of God. Luke emphasizes the Spirit like crazy, especially Jesus' dependence on the Spirit. So what you find in Luke is he keeps talking about how Jesus, dependent on the Spirit, is proclaiming the kingdom and bringing the kingdom of God. The second theme is that as Jesus, by the Spirit, is bringing God's kingdom, he's also making his way to Jerusalem. There's a famous verse, Luke 9, 51, that says Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. You'll notice this is a theme of Luke. So here you got Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, making his way to Jerusalem, where he'll ultimately give up his life. Where does the book of Acts begin? In Jerusalem. What is the first thing that takes place? The Spirit of God is poured out. <laughs> The whole idea is that the same spirit that empowered Jesus, that led him to Jerusalem, Jesus says, now wait here in Jerusalem, the spirit will be poured out on you, and you go and continue my mission. <laughs> the church is many things. We are a body, a bride, but we must see ourselves as a spirit-filled community that is an extension of the anointing of Christ. Amen? Yes. All right, so let's, let's see a few things in the word, and then um, we're going to pray. 
So let's go to, uh, yeah, pray. is going to be awesome, right? Let's go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Again, we're looking at the connection of Luke and Acts. Jesus setting an example. This is really going to help us to understand what exactly was happening at Pentecost, okay? So as we're reading this, I want you to be just thinking about, if you know the story of Pentecost, uh, you will, I I promise, there's already going to be connections that are going to be going off in your mind, and when we get there, it'll really come together. All right, I want you to see this. Guys, I really encourage you to bring your Bible or whatever you use, if it's your phone, whatever it is. The reason why is there's something different about when you see it in the Word for yourself, okay? So there's one thing to hear me say it. It's another thing to see it written there. It changes everything. All right, so Luke 3, I'm going to pick it up in verse 21, and here's what's happening. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus to come. And he prepares the way by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As John is doing this, Jesus is going to come on the scene and Jesus is actually going to enter into this baptism. Not because Jesus has sin, but there's a lot of reasons, but he's identifying with the humanity, uh, with humanity and our brokenness and our sinful nature, even though he was perfect. It's a sign of how he's, he's going to come and redeem everything, right? And so we're going to pick it up in verse 21, Luke 3, which is we have the baptism of Jesus. He's going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And here's what it says. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, very important, Jesus was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. All right. So Jesus comes to this baptism. John baptizes him in the waters. Jesus comes up. And it says he prays, and while he prays, that is when the Holy Spirit comes down. So I'm just going to get ahead of myself here, but when did the Holy Spirit fall in Acts? What were the church doing? They were praying. (laughs) Everything about this is going to be an example for what takes place in the book of Acts. So Jesus prays, the Holy Spirit descends, but there's a very unique uh, phrase here that we're actually going to go much deeper into next week because it's really profound in how the Spirit rested on Jesus But it said the heavens were opened. You guys see that? The heavens were opened. And the Gospel of Matthew doesn't quite capture the intensity of this moment. Mark does a better job, I think. Mark says the heavens were rend open. When you rend something, you split it. You tear it apart. You violently rip it apart. And so the idea is that as Jesus comes out of the waters and as he prays, the heavens are ripped open. They are split open. It is a sign of a violent act. It is a picture that there is going to be an unprecedented display of the Spirit being poured out on the earth in a way we have never seen before. No one will carry the Spirit like this man has ever carried the Spirit. The heavens are ripped open. Jesus prays, and the Spirit now begins to come down on him. And how does the Spirit come down? The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. Okay, this is also very important. If you were to go look at a photo or go Google the baptism of Jesus, you will typically find a picture of the Spirit coming and as a dove flapping his wings on the shoulder of Jesus. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. There, there's, you know, that's just being an artist and creative, but that's not what the scripture says. The Holy Spirit did not come as a dove. The Holy Spirit is just as much a dove as Jesus is a lamb. When we say Jesus is the lamb, we're not saying he's a literal lamb. It speaks to his work and his mission and what he's come to do. The Holy Spirit is like a dove. He's gentle, he's meek, he's powerful, but he's like a dove. But how did the Holy Spirit actually come upon Jesus? Bodily form. What does that mean? It means a person came and you have to picture this, clothed him. Jesus was clothed with power from on high. <laughs> I just want to jump ahead and get ahead of myself here. But he will give a very similar command to his church in just a few minutes when we look at it. Jesus is clothed with power from on high. So a dove did not flap his wings and come on Jesus' shoulder, but the spirit, which is like a dove, came and clothed him. And then it says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now verse 23 is very important. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry. So when did Jesus begin ministry? Not until he was clothed with power from on high. He would not go until he received this clothing of power. Are you with me? So here's a question to ask. What exactly is happening at Jesus' baptism? There's a lot of questions. You say, wait, I don't understand. The Spirit of God is clothing him, like it's coming upon him. Jesus, he's God. I don't, did he not have the Holy Spirit before this? And I want, you to, I want you to track with me. This is where Jesus is being anointed and empowered for ministry, okay? This is the, track with me, this is the second operation of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. This is, if you would, the second activity or the second task. What was the first one? Well, it was at his conception. Jesus was born of the Spirit. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. Do you remember when Mary asked Angel Gabriel, how will this happen? I've never been with a man. I'm a virgin. How will I give birth? And the angel says, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and you will have a child. So Jesus was born and conceived by the Spirit. I want to be abundantly clear. He has always been the Holy One, the Son of God. Always. But what is happening at his baptism is this is where he's becoming the spirit-anointed son that was prophesied. It is here where Jesus is stepping into his role as the Christ, the one who is smeared with oil, who has been empowered to bring the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So hold your spot right here, and um, we're going to come right back. I want, it, want you to see this for yourself. Come to Acts 10. Yep, Acts chapter 10. What's, what's amazing, too, is the idea of Jesus' birth. Just a side note, I think it's fascinating. If, do you remember what happened at original creation? Do you remember what the Spirit was doing? The Spirit was hovering over the waters, and then, new, and then creation came. In the same way the Spirit hovered over the waters, the Spirit hovered over Mary at new creation, Jesus being the firstborn of that. So he was born, conceived of the Spirit, always the Holy One, always the Son of God. But it's at his baptism where he's becoming the Spirit-anointed Son that was prophesied. Now look at Acts 10. I'm going to pick it up in verse 37. This is where Peter was preaching in the house of Cornelius. And thankfully, Peter gives commentary on Jesus' baptism and doesn't leave us guessing as to what exactly was happening. So let's read verse 37. It says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. Stop. He just said, 
the baptism that John proclaimed. Peter is literally talking about the baptism we just read in Luke chapter 3, okay? He's now going to tell us what exactly happened to Jesus at this baptism. Let's keep reading verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Where was Jesus anointed? At his baptism. <laughs> How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. With the Holy Spirit and with power. To do what? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So again, I want you to see this. At the baptism of Jesus is where he was anointed. Peter's own words, he was anointed in order that by the Spirit, he would go about doing good and healing all who was oppressed by the devil. So Jesus was born of the Spirit, but there was a second task of the Holy Spirit, which was to anoint him, to empower him for ministry. Amen? Let's come back to Luke, Luke 3. I promise we're just like building this thing up, so track with me. Luke chapter 3. After, after Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit, heavens rend open, spirit falls on him. Now he begins his ministry. We move into chapter 4. Jesus, if you notice, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's dependent on the Spirit. Very important for us in a moment. And then, as he's in the wilderness facing temptation, he overcomes and he leaves the wilderness now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we come into another section I want to read, verse 16. I'll pick it up in verse 17 of Luke 4. Jesus enters the synagogue as he would normally do the custom on the Sabbath for the scripture reading. And wouldn't you know that the scripture reading for that day is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And so Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to read and say, this scripture is fulfilled today. It's been fulfilled. Here's what he says, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me. Now, where did that scene take place? At the baptism. He's referring back to when he was baptized that that is when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and anointed him. So he's always born of the Spirit, but now this is a second work where the Spirit is coming on him in order that he would be anointed. The Spirit does not come on us for entertainment, but for empowerment. Most of everything we're going to read right now, this is actually what we need the Spirit for. Now, to be clear, I love all the things that come with the church. We are a family. I love all the communal activities. They have value and significance. But what I will say is we need to be careful that all the things that we do, we actually don't need the Spirit for. <laughs> That's a dangerous place when most of the activities of the church actually does not require dependence on the Spirit. These things are what it actually looks like to be a New Testament disciple. So he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he sums it up by saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So why was the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, resting on him? So that he would ultimately, it says, bring the year of the Lord's favor, which was literally setting people free in every single way imaginable. 
The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus and reveals that we have a God who wills human wholeness. In every single way, Jesus said, the Spirit is on me to revive, to refresh, to restore. Broken hearts, crushed in spirit, broken bodies, broken minds. The Spirit is on me and moving through me, and the age of renewal has, has begun. Everything the Spirit touches, it begins to revive. Everything that's listed here, guys, has, I think, a twofold application. It has a natural application and a spiritual. Meaning, it says to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus did this in the, in the natural. He, like, he literally opened blind eyes. But, of course, he also opened spiritually blind eyes. He did both of these things. We need both of them. The Spirit of the Lord rested on Jesus as he did both of this. And he sums it up by saying it this way. He says, this, this, this setting captives free, this giving sight to the blind, he says it's called the year of the Lord's favor. <laughs> Do you know that we live in the year of the Lord's favor? The year is not a 12-month period. It is an age of which we are still in. It is an age in which God's grace is being, in a very unique way, poured out. And we still remain in that period. The year of the Lord's favor is actually a reference to the Jubilee year. You guys ever read about the Jubilee year? Every 50 years in Israel would be the Jubilee year. And here's the best way to summarize it. The year of Jubilee was the year of release. If you had debt, you were released from it. If you were a slave or an indentured servant, you were released from it. People, property, debts, everything was released in the year of Jubilee. When Jesus says the Spirit is on me and it is the year of the Lord's favor, he says it's the year of release. <laughs> Captives are being set free. Those who have broken hearts are being set free. Broken minds, broken bodies. He says everyone is being released now. This is what we're contending for, guys. To see God's favor. Listen, it's really easy to look at news and things and get really discouraged. Never forget, there is a transcendent title over the age that we're living in. It's called the year of the Lord's favor. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it looks like, we stayed anchored to the throne of God knowing Jesus opened a door for this year. And if this age still remains and Jesus is not on the earth, how is this mission continuing? By the church. <laughs> We're going to see the same spirit that was anointing Jesus, he's going to pour out on us as well. <laughs> now, before I show you that, this is really important. And again, I don't want you to uh, misunderstand me, so I want you to hear me because I feel like uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding and then people go into extremes and I don't want that to happen. But here's my question, because this will really help us to see the example Jesus sets. Since Jesus is God... Why did Jesus need the Spirit of the Lord upon him to do these works? Just think about that. Since he is God, why did he need the Spirit of the Lord? Because what he's actually saying is, I couldn't start ministry until the Spirit came on me this way, and it's by the Spirit I'm releasing people. Why would that happen? Here's why. Philippians 2 is a very important verse you have to hear. Philippians 2 says, Even though Jesus is God, equal with God, had the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, meaning he did not hold on to his divine privileges and powers even though he could have, but instead it says he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and came in the likeness of man. Now let me be abundantly clear. That does not mean that Jesus stopped being God ever. He was always God, but what that does mean is that Jesus embraces our weakness and frailty and really lived as a man. To empty himself means that Jesus voluntarily deprived himself from being able to draw from his deity. He wasn't drawing from his deity. Guys, 
This is so important. If everything Jesus did was as God, it would be impressive, but you couldn't follow him. If Jesus said, follow me, but everything I've done, I've drawn from my strength as God, we would say, that's amazing, but I can't follow you because I am not God. But if everything Jesus did was from a place of really walking in the frailty and weakness of man, which is what Hebrews confirms, and he really did overcome sin as a man by looking to the Spirit and looking to the Father. If he really did this, if he really began to drive out demons and heal people by the Spirit of the Lord resting on him, then that means it's not just impressive, it is an invitation for us. The Lord says, now come, follow me. He, listen, this is, this is um, man, I, John 5, 19. Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. What? You're Lord of creation. You're Lord of new creation. What do you mean? He says, I can do nothing on my own except what I see the Father doing. He's making a statement of sonship. He's saying, I've come to really live as a son to show the way for you. Every step of the way, Jesus lived truly as a man, fully looking to the Father, fully dependent on the Spirit as we were called to live. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see everywhere Jesus moves, he's relying on the Spirit. One of the greatest examples of this is found in Luke 4 that we just read where he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. When Jesus gets tempted by Satan, it says he's full of the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit. He's fasting, it says he's hungry. Everything about this is elevating his humanity. And when he faces Satan, guys, he, he doesn't, he could have just breathed as God and it's over. I know there's a measure of mystery here, but he really stands toe-to-toe with Satan as a man being the true Israel now, being the second Adam. And so when he, fought, when he goes against Satan, it's not some like play acting, like, oh, we're doing this. No, in frailty and weakness, he felt the full force of the kingdom of darkness, and he had to rely on the Spirit and look to the Father, and he overcame, which means he says, I've given you the Spirit. You too now have the hope of walking after me. Does that, do you guys understand that? If he went into the wilderness and just said, I'm God, you're done, again, that's impressive, but we would be on the outsiders of that. But he's actually saying, if you look at my example as a man, you can follow after me now. That's for everything. That's for purity. That is for power. So the Spirit of the Lord rested on Jesus because truly as a man, as a man, he leaned into the Spirit to do these things. And so the summary of the rest of Luke is that Jesus, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, will now go and fulfill the Luke 4 mandate. He's going to proclaim the kingdom of God, and he's going to demonstrate it, all the while making his way to Jerusalem. Now let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 48. By the way, I don't know if this helps or what I just shared. I, I just came to me. I, I share this illustration. Some of you probably heard it. Uh, it's not perfect. No illustration is perfect when you're talking about the deep things of God. They always fall short. But one of the ways to understand how Jesus remained God but didn't pull from his deity but pulled from the spirit on him uh, is electronic device. You can, you can use electronic device based off of its uh, battery. Or you can plug in electronic device and has to pull from from the, from the outlet, right? Jesus could have drawn from the internal battery of being God, but he chose not to. How? We don't fully understand this, but he chose not to. He emptied himself, and he chose to plug himself into the Spirit and have to draw from the Spirit of God. And he did that to show us an example of what it looked like for us. So now we come to Luke 24. Here's Jesus under the power of God. 
power of the Spirit, anointed, proclaiming the, the kingdom, demonstrating it. He gets to Jerusalem, he dies, resurrects, and right before he ascends, let's look at what he tells his church. He says, you, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, meaning of my life, death, burial, resurrection. Now look at verse 29. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in this city. What city? Jerusalem. So Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, dies, and he says, don't leave this city until what? Until you are clothed with power from on high. What happened at Jesus' baptism? He was clothed with power from on high. He gets to Jerusalem, dies, resurrects, and says, now you wait here until you are clothed with power from on high. And then you can, what, you know what he's really saying? He says, don't start ministry until you've been clothed with power from on high. When did Jesus start his ministry? Until he was clothed with power from on high. And the same way that Jesus was born of the Spirit, but then had a second work of the Spirit, I don't, I'm slow to put patterns and formulas, but I do think there's a, there is a, a um, I should say, I don't want to make anything law, but when I look at the scriptures, I do see what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit is often it's subsequent to uh, being just born again and converted. Meaning, I often see there is a second work of which then we see the Spirit of God anointing someone like this. Not always, but it happens a lot. Just as Jesus was born of the Spirit and then had the Spirit anoint him, these disciples, guys, they were already clean. Do you know that? They were clean. Jesus said in John 13, when he was washing the feet of the disciples, and Peter said, you can't wash my feet. I should basically be washing your feet. It's kind of comical. because Jesus says, But Jesus says this, unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. And then Peter says, well, then wash everything. Give me a bath. And Jesus basically says, Peter, you are already clean. You don't need a bath. I just need to wash your feet from the daily living, right? The point is he declared that he was clean, which means he has a part of him. And Romans says no man can be a part of him unless by the Spirit of God, right? Um, John 15, Jesus talks about the, the true vine. He tells his disciples when in, in the context of pruning, he says, you are already clean by my words. John 20, when Jesus resurrects, before he ascends, he goes into the uh, room where the disciples are locked because they're afraid of the persecution coming. Jesus passes through the wall. That's a whole thing. Says, says, peace be with you. He says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And then he says, receive, my Holy, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he breathes into them. That was the Holy Spirit for new life, resurrection life. So these men were clean, these men were, were, were born with the Spirit, but this was a second work that was taking place. Jesus does not say, wait in Jerusalem to be born again. He does not say, wait into Jerusalem to become members of the body of Christ. He says, wait in Jerusalem to be clothed with power so that you will be my witnesses. Amen? Amen. So come to Acts 1. We're almost there, then we're going to pray for this. Acts 1. I want to read the very first verse. Acts 1, verse 1. Now look how beautifully Luke connects this. Acts 1, verse 1. He begins by saying, in the first book. What book is that? The Gospel of Luke. So he's saying in my first book, in the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, which is who he's writing to, look what he says. He says, I have dealt 
with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Stop. (laughs) What is he saying? He's saying, Theophilus, in my first book, in the Gospel of Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is what he's saying is now in my second book, I will deal with all that Jesus still does and teaches. (laughs) Except Jesus is not on the earth in his bodily form anymore. So who do you think now is speaking and doing the things of Jesus? The church. And if we're going to do, and if we're going to speak the things that Jesus has done and taught, then we probably need to be clothed with the same power that Jesus was clothed with. Yes. (laughs) If we're going to see those things, that's what we're going to have to, uh, I believe, have to long for. And here's the amazing thing, is that Jesus actually says by his own words, that we will not only do the things that he did and, and, and say the things that he said, but John 14, 12, he says, anyone who believes in me will actually do even greater works. Even greater works. Now, most of the time, what I found is we want to reduce that to mean that we will see greater quantities of salvations and it will reach a more diverse group of people. To be clear, that is true. Jesus' ministry was three years. There are more people, there are harvests that have come in that Jesus never saw in his life in that sense. And Jesus primarily taught to the Jews, the door has been opened up to the Gentiles. So to be clear, greater works does include the fact that we see more salvations and it's opened up to all peoples. But to reduce that word, to reduce that phrase specifically to that, I believe, I'm speaking myself, when, that, when I want to do that, it's a poor excuse for unbelief in my heart. Because the word works here is always used to describe Jesus' mighty works of miracles. It's the mighty works of bringing the kingdom of God. So, for example, when John the Baptist sent two disciples, when he was in prison and said, hey, would you ask if Jesus is the one? The disciples came to Jesus. Jesus, I love, doesn't even answer the question. He just begins to heal, deliver, set free. And then he says, go tell John what you see and hear. It says they go to John And they report that the lame see, uh, uh, or the lame walk, the blind see, the the deaf hear, the mute can speak. All those things happen. And it says in Matthew 11, 2, now when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, the works being the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, this is the greater works that we are invited into. Here's the key, though. Jesus says you will do even greater works because I go to the Father. Why is that important? Because Jesus said, I can only send the Spirit until I go, unless I go to the Father. The connection of greater works is the clothing of power by the Spirit. So we can go in our own strength, even with all of the desire and compassion in our hearts, which is good and important to see God move. But unless clothed with power, um, I don't believe we're going to see these things because it's only by the Spirit. So last verse, I'll share verse 8 of Acts 1. Jesus says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So again, what is the emphasis of the Spirit coming on them? It is not simply to be regenerated. It is for power. Power to actually live out what it means to be a New Testament disciple. So... I want to pray for this. (laughs) I want to pray for baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to pray if you've been filled before and you know that, I want to pray that you're going to be filled again. Disciples were filled again. 
again and again, Paul commands for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe we are right on the brink, guys, of really seeing a revival of the power of God again in the church. And it's not for this weird, like, perverted thing to say, look at us. It's so that we can actually, like, we can actually see the, the promises of God, the renewal of God, the reviving of God. These are acts of God's love. When God sets someone free, not just brings them in from lostness, but when God heals someone, delivers uh, someone, that's an act of love. Love is both practical and powerful. Like if we have a food pantry, we want to bring people in uh, and give them food. But listen, we also need to pray that, that someone who's 70 years old, who's still relying on someone else to give them food, I want to pray against the strongholds in their mind that leads them into that lifestyle. I want to love them by giving them practically food, but I also want to love them by praying that they'd be set free. The love of God is both practical and powerful. We're longing for this. So many times in the book of Acts, it was when God demonstrated his kingdom, people began to repent. People began to say, God is really real. I've had conversations with Haroon, who's preached in Pakistan. There, the, the, what they want to see is, who's Jesus, uh, who, who's, who's uh, uh, um, Allah? Right? We want to see who, who's real. I mean, they, they, the only way they can show it is someone who's bound has to come forward. You pray to your God, we'll pray to our God. This is, this is scriptural things. This is what Elijah did on Mount Carmel. He says, you pray to your God, I'll pray to my God. We'll see who sends fire. I'm, I'm not speaking as one who's arrived by any means. All I know is God's stirring my heart to long for these things and to see God move this way. Amen? There's so much more. Um, can you come up, Crystal? Would you mind playing on the keys? I want to... I wasn't sure I was going to do this. I want to, I wanna, as Crystal's just playing on the keys... I want to share a very quick testimony with you guys, um, and I think we'll just stir your faith, and then we're going to pray. How many of you guys have ever heard of a, a man by the name of Smith Wigglesworth? And everyone here, Smith Wigglesworth? It's, uh, there are many people that have stirred my life. He is one in a very unique way that has stirred my life. <laughs> um, he lived from 1859 to 1947. He became a dominant voice. Uh, his story is really amazing. It's hard to just hold back all the details. He was uh, a plumber. He was a very ordinary guy. He was a plumber. Uh, kind of was up and down with the Lord for a while. Um, but everything changed in his life in 1907 when he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Everything changed. Prior to that, he loved the Lord. He served God. But again, it was kind of up and down. Actually, God blessed him with work, and then that work became a curse in that he began to drift from the Lord. His wife remained on fire. There's one funny story. His wife kept coming home late for ministry events. He got angry. He said, you do that again, you can't stay here. She came home late. It was pouring, raining. He said, that's it, you're out. He kicked her out of the house. She went around the back door. It was wide open. She opened the door. She came in. She began to burst out laughing. He began to break out in this supernatural laughing. And something broke in a moment, and his fire began to be rekindled for the Lord. And so he was hungry for God. Guys, you should read the stories. It's unbelievable. He was hungry for God. He was even seeing God move. There were healings. There were different things happening. Uh, he was really seeing, like, the scriptures actually happening today. Um, but he knew there was more. And there was one uh, gentleman in particular that he prayed for that got healed. And the gentleman said, hey, you need to go to Sunderland. God is moving mightily. This is around 1907. Now, Azusa Street was just happening in California. This is in England, where Smith Wigglesworth is. So, baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, the gift of tongues, which is not always, but often accompanied with it. This is all like brand new stuff. And they say, God is moving. He's pouring out his spirit in Sunderland. And this guy said, I've got to go. 
So he goes here. Uh, he's there for about a week or so, I think, and he's hungry. He's, he's asking God. In fact, he's so hungry, he's, he's borderline, he says, disruptive. He's always interrupting meetings. Like, he's asking about, he's got questions, and people are getting kind of annoyed. But God's moving, but nothing has really happened, but he's so hungry. People have been there for months. They're just pressing and seeking into the Lord. And finally, on the last day there, he's like, I got to leave at 4 o'clock. He goes to the wife of the leader and says, you need to lay hands on me. I need, I, I need to experience this. I, 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 need the, I need to go in the power of the Lord. And, uh, and the lady lays hands on him, and he begins to exclaim. <laughs> he says, the fire is falling, he begins to say. The fire is falling. And as that happens, he begins to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as that's happening, there's a knock on the door. It's persistent. And, uh, and the lady who prayed left. He said, thankfully she did, because it led him to have a personal encounter with the Lord. And as he's really under the weight of glory, uh, he has this vision of an empty cross and a Jesus who is glorified. And the vision kind of unfolds and he begins to hear a voice speaking over him saying, clean, clean, clean. And he says, as he hears this, he begins to join in and repeat it. But as he begins to say clean, he recognizes that he's not speaking in an English tongue anymore. He begins to speak in another tongue. And he, he realizes he's being baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He describes the experience and just the joy of the Lord, the love of God running through his body. And what's interesting is because God used him before, he thought he had, he had great encounters with God, but he really thought he was walking in this. And he realized that he wasn't. And so he gets touched mightily. But here's, here's the key, guys, is the fruit. I love all the things that happen. I, I, I know there's many things that happen when God touches someone, but the key is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is unto missions. It's unto making Jesus known. And here's the fruit. It's when he got back from this trip, his wife, his son said, what happened? He said, I was touched by the Lord. And his wife was skeptical. Because, I should have mentioned this, he had a really bad stuttering problem, and he was not very eloquent with his words when he spoke. Many times he, he stopped his messages early because he just couldn't say anything else. And he would just kind of weep, and people would gradually come up to be prayed for. And she said, if this man has really been touched by the Lord like this, let me see what happens when he preaches. <laughs> so that night, he opens up the word, and he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, what we just read in Luke. And as he begins to share it, his wife is amazed. He's speaking as a, a mouthpiece, not one who's just heard something, but he has become this message. And as he speaks, it says the power of God is filling the room. And at the end of sharing these verses, one man stands up and says, Brethren, we need what this man has. As that man tries to go and sit down, the power of God comes over his life and he comes under the glory of God. Immediately, it says 14 people come under the power of God and revival begins to break out in the meeting. From this point, the kingdom of God began to just follow him. These signs will follow those who believe. Everywhere he went, he would proclaim the gospel salvation. Souls would just be one and then he would demonstrate God's kingdom on the earth. And there is one story in particular I want to share and then we're going to pray to stir your heart to see what's on the other side. He was receiving so many, um, so many people were reaching out, asking him to come, to preach, whatever it may be. And there was one family who had a nine-year-old boy who was very, very sick, actually was in a coma. And they asked, they said, would you come? Would you come? And he said, yes. He would always go no matter what. He was faithful. And so he takes this trip, and for whatever reason, when he gets close, he has to transition to a bicycle. And he has to ride nine miles on a bike to get to this farm where this boy is. When he gets there, the mother comes out of the house and she says this great line. She says, you're too late. And he says, God has never sent me late anywhere before. <laughs> yeah. 
So he comes inside, he fasts and prays. I don't know how long, but it said he fasted and prayed. This is, there's all these biographies of his that he writes and other people testify to this. He fasts and prays and says, I want you to get the boys' clothes ready. And the next day he goes to a Sunday service. At service, all the people are aware that he's there and the boy is sick and they see that there's faith for this boy to be healed. He knows God's gonna do something. He comes back to the house, but he finds that the parents did not get the clothes ready. So he got the clothes ready. And then he had someone put the stockings on the boy. And then he had everyone clear out of the room. This is like straight out of things that like Jesus has done. And he closes the door and he goes up to the boy who's in a coma. They didn't think he was going to make it. And in the biography it says that he lays his hand on the boy's hand and immediately the presence of God begins to fill the room. And the presence of God so strongly filled the room that Smith Wigglesworth actually came under the power of God and collapsed under the power of God. So now he's on the floor under the power of God, but the boy simultaneously is coming back to life by the power of God. He was there for 15 minutes. The boy comes back up. He's so excited. He exclaims. He shouts. He puts on his clothes. And guess what he goes to do? He wants to go tell his parents in the other room. But when he opens the door to go tell his parents, the glory of God not only filled the house, I mean filled the room, it filled the whole house. Both the parents came under the power of God as well. But it's not only stops there. The daughter, his sister, was struggling with mental illness. She was in a mental asylum. She just got released a few days ago. They didn't know what to do. At that same time, she was radically healed from the disease of her mind. Set free as well from the glory of God. And it said from that place in this small town in England, revival began to break out. I can't tell you how many stories of how the power of God moved. And all I'm saying is that we need a hunger. We need a hunger for this. We need a hunger for God to move this way. We're saying, Lord, my own wisdom, my own strength, my own reasoning, it will never be enough, God. We need you to clothe us with power. Fill freshly. Amen?